ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We welcome you to Gospel Dynamite, a Christian broadcast dedicated to the salvation of the lost and the revival of God's people. I'm Alan Mashburn, your Bible teacher and the pastor of Asbury Baptist Church, located at 218 Asbury Church Road in Seagrove, North Carolina. We invite you to visit our church at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. On Sunday evenings, we provide online services which can be viewed on gospeldynamite.org. Now please join me in the study of the Word of God. You're listening to Gospel Dynamite. Thank you for joining us. I invite you to take your Bible. Turn with us to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Today we look at the church of Pergamos. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent! or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. The city of Pergamos was the capital city of Asia Minor. It was renowned for its political power, its intellectual achievement, and its pagan worship. It was a wealthy city given over to luxury and fashion. Along those same lines, Pergamos was the place where parchment was actually invented. Parchment was a type of writing material developed from animal skins, and it was far stronger than papyrus which was made from reeds. There are three temples in Pergamos devoted to the emperor worship cult. And as I've already mentioned, once a year, every Roman citizen was required to walk into one of these temples, place a pinch of incense on an altar, and say, Caesar is God. Of course, Christians refused to do that, Thus a severe persecution arose, and on the hill outside the city there was a massive altar dedicated to Zeus, the supreme ruler of gods. This altar was 100 feet square and 40 feet tall. It is to this Christian congregation in this city that Jesus addresses this letter. They were a church in desperate need of a word from the Lord. So when Jesus comes to them, he comes as one having the sharp sword with two edges. The two-edged sword is a clear picture of the word of God, Hebrews 4 and verse 12. 
Now Jesus comes to them declaring that he has a word for them from God. And as we study these verses, we're going to discover that this church was doctrinally pure, but they had drifted into compromise. Now before we go any farther, let me remind you that these letters can be viewed three different ways. First, they can be viewed practically. These are real letters written to real churches living in a real world. They can be viewed prophetically. These letters picture the church during different eras of history. This particular church symbolizes the church as a whole as it existed during the years 313 to 590 AD when the church married the world. Now personally, there's a word here for our church and us as individuals in the church today. Now, as we come to this text, Jesus comes to them with a word from God, and it's going to be very important to notice the kinds of words he speaks as we look at the text. First, in verse 13, I would show you that he gives them words of commendation. He says, I know thy works. Jesus knew all about this church. He knew where it was. He knew what they were doing. He knew what they were facing. He knew them very intimately. And we need to remember that he knows every church intimately. He knows everything there is to know about every one of us. And he begins by giving them, this church, words of commendation. Very important to note that he recognizes their situation. He says, where Satan's seat is, then he says, where Satan dwelleth. This church operated right in the middle of a city chosen by Satan as headquarters on earth. Now, regardless of what some people may think, what some preachers may preach, some songs may say, Satan is not now nor has he ever been in hell. He dreads that place more than any lost man ever has. When he is sent to hell, it will spell his eternal doom, and he knows it, Revelation 20 and verse 10. Now, in our day, Satan is free and operates as the God of this world, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. Also, Ephesians 2 and 2 says that he's the prince of the power of the air. So in other words, Satan is active in our world, and it suffice to say that he has a seat of power somewhere. It may be New York, it may be Las Vegas, Washington, D.C., Moscow, or a thousand other places. Nevertheless, these words are used to let us know that Jesus knows they are living in a tight spot, in a tough place. He knows where they are, and he has a word just for them. I might add to you, believer, that he knows our situations as well. He knows it when we're in a difficult place. He knows it when we are in a difficult marriage. He knows it when we face persecution on the job, at school, at home, or even at church. He knows the pressures of society and as it places it on the dedicated child of God. He knows, he cares, and he's there, and he will help you. And that's what we must remember in our day. But Jesus also points out that he knows their steadfastness. We're told that they dwelled in Pergamos. They dwelled in Pergamos. There are two words translated dwell in the New Testament. The word one means to take up a temporary dwelling. 
The other one is used here, and it means to settle down, to stay, and to take up a permanent residence. These people had settled down in Pergamos, and they were not running away from the trouble around them. They set a good example for churches existing in this day. Far too often we allow the world to cause us to run and hide in fear. They're trying their best to drive the church away into oblivion. We must take our stand and make our stand in this world and be willing to stand up, speak up against the evils and the wickedness that mark our society. And I might add we must be able to do it whatever the cost. The church in Pergamos was doing a couple of things right, and Jesus commends them for it. First, they held fast to his name. This church was not ashamed of the name of Jesus. His name is the most divisive name in history, yet his name is the only name in history whereby men must be saved, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. There's some churches you can go to and you can sit through an entire service and never hear the name Jesus mentioned. That's sad. And I might add that it's an abomination. We need to make much of that name. And when folks come to our churches, if they hear anything else, they should hear this, that Jesus Christ is the one who purchased our redemption and Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, we're not here to promote Baptists. We're not here to promote churches. We're not here to promote this preacher or that preacher. We're not here to set anyone on a pedestal. We're certainly not here to, to, to promote denominationalism. We're here to promote and exalt Jesus Christ. And we must be in the business of lifting up his name. And I might add, we should be in that business to lift up his name and his name only. Secondly, they were commended because they had not denied the faith. This church was doctrinally pure. They held on to the fundamentals of the faith, and Jesus praised them for it. Now, there's plenty of room for liberty in our service to the Lord. We don't all have to live by the same opinions. If you have a problem with that, read Romans 14 and 15 sometime, and it will settle that matter for you. However, there are some things that are non-negotiable. And if you do not hold these certain things to be true, then you are not a believer. You are not a Christian no matter what you say. The ancient church held fast to the faith, and we must as well. Now you may say, preacher, what are the fundamentals? What are these fundamentals that we must hold to in the faith? We must hold to the fact of the verbal, plenary inspiration of the scriptures. We must hold to the fact of the virgin birth of the Savior. We must hold to the fact of the vicarious death of Jesus Christ. And we must hold to the fact and never budge on the victorious resurrection of our Savior. We must take our stand on these precious truths. Far too many Groups are turning away from the fundamental doctrines of the faith and they're swiftly sliding into apostasy. Regardless of what anyone else does or even what our denomination may do, we must take our stand on the fundamental doctrines of the word of God and I shall not be moved. Jesus also brings to the fact uh, that he knows their sacrifices. Their stand for Jesus had been costly. 
even when this church was undergoing severe persecution, they stood for the Lord. They stood for his word. Jesus mentions a man by the name of Antipas. He's called a fateful martyr. History tells us that Antipas refused to offer the pinch of incense and say Caesar is God. Because of his refusal to worship Caesar, Antipas was placed inside of a brass bull. A fire was built under the bull and Antipas was roasted to death. And in spite of this, the Christians in Pergamos held fast to their witness. They held fast to their witness. Jesus applauds them for their stand. I want you to notice from the text, Antipas is called my fateful martyr. This is the same name that was given to Jesus in Revelation 1 and verse 5. Because Antipas stood with the Lord, even though it cost him his life, Jesus calls Antipas by his own name. Now notice this also. Antipas has been all but forgotten by history, yet Jesus knows his name. We need never fear that our sacrifices for him are in vain. He sees the small, he sees the large, he sees everything openly every day. And we're going to be rewarded for all of those things when we stand before him. Now notice with me in verses 14 through 16, we see his words of commendation. When the Savior looks at this church, he finds some things that please him, but not everything is to his liking. Having offered them some words of commendation, he now gives them some words of confrontation. Verses 14 and 15, he confronts the compromise in the church. The word Pergamos means married. And as we look at what Jesus points out about this church, we're given a glimpse of a church that's fallen into a state of compromise with the world. This church is held on to pure doctrine with one hand and with the other. They have embraced the world. They are literally in an unequal yoke with unbelievers, and Jesus confronts them about it in these verses. Here's what he says is wrong with this church. Verse 14, he says there's corruption in the membership. He tells them that some of their number hold the doctrine of Balaam. And Balaam is one of the strangest characters on the pages of the Bible. He is an enigma, a real mystery. On the one hand, he was a man intimately acquainted with God. He knew about God. He knew about God's character. He even talked with God. But on the other hand, he was motivated by greed. He was guilty of leading the people of God into immorality and idolatry. And you can read more about that in Numbers 22, uh, chapters 22 through 25. And in those verses, Balak, the king of Moab, wanted to curse the nation of Israel, so he called for Balaam to come do the dirty work. He promises his wealth and promotion for his services, and four times Balaam tries to curse Israel. Each time the Lord turns the curse into blessings. When he sees that his attempts to curse Israel have failed, Balaam apparently suggests that since they can't curse Israel, they should corrupt them. This is accompanied by leading them off into immorality and idolatry and thus bringing the wrath of God down upon them, according to Numbers 25, verse 1, chapter 31, and verse 16. Basically, the doctrine of Balaam is wickedness and worldliness. The church at Pergamos was tolerating people in their midst who claimed to be Christians. Some of their membership were living 
immoral lives, participating in pagan worship. Jesus is not at all pleased with these things. Might I add, the, the same problem is rampant in the modern church. There's so many people who believe that since you're saved by grace and you're kept by grace, that you can live any way you please. It's no wonder that society has no respect for the church. We've lost our power. It's no wonder that there's no power in the church. We live as we please without regard to the clear commands of God. And here's the fact of the matter. If you're saved, if you're born again, you will not be like the world around you. If you're saved, you will walk differently. You will talk differently, and you will have a different set of standards than the world. If you can adopt this world's attitude about substance abuse, sex, music, etc., then you're most likely not saved. You're not born again. When Jesus Christ saves a soul, he creates a new creature. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. He changes everything about that saved person's life. They're different and they live like they're different. Now, whether you like it or not, there are some clear standards for living in this book we call the Bible. We can either do them and prove we are of the truth or we can ignore them and prove that we are of the darkness. But you cannot have it both ways. If you're saved, live like you're saved. If you're not, then do as you please. Verse 15, there's confusion in the leadership. Others there, according to the text, held to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. As we discovered back in Revelation 2 and verse 6, the word Nicolaitans means to conquer the people. Probably refers to a priestly class that had developed within the church. What was merely deeds in verse 6 has now become doctrine in verse 15. It had started out with the leadership in the church elevating themselves above everyone else and it's turned into a doctrine in that fellowship. Now, God has established certain offices within the church. Those in these offices are to be respected. They're to be listened to if they carry out their office according to the word of God. For instance, we have pastors and deacons, and they have a biblical office. They're to be respected. They're to be, uh, to be honored as they fulfill the demands of that office. If they do not fulfill their obligations, then they should resign and be asked to step, or be asked to step down. Now, I'm the man that God's placed here in this church, but just because I'm the pastor doesn't mean I'm a dictator. doesn't mean I always get what I want. What it means is that I am to look to Christ, I am to look to him and allow the Holy Spirit to lead, give me the messages that his people need, and make sure that I am following everything in the Word of God and that the ministry is adhering to the pages of Scripture. When I preach the word of God and when I preach it correctly, you would do well to listen to the message. I'm the pastor. A pastor preaches, a pastor teaches. And in the local church, the pastor is to lead. He's to take the oversight thereof because he gives an account to God for all aspects of the ministry. But that does not make me the Lord. The Lord Jesus is the Lord of the church, and no one in the church is to be worshipped or placed on a high pedestal of honor. We are all under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're all accountable to him. Now notice in verse 16, he confronts the consequences of the church. He tells them to repent. Now this word means to change the mind. Repentance is really a change of mind that, 
that results in a change of direction. If they refuse to repent and deal with the corruption and confusion in their midst, then he's going to come to his church. He's going to fight against those who trouble it. Notice the change of pronouns in verse 16. Thee to them. The Lord knows who belongs to him and who doesn't. And he will come to his church and afflict those who are not really his people, but who would bring trouble into the church of God. It's a fearful thing to be found on the wrong side of the Lord. It's a dangerous business to be found fighting against and causing trouble in a church. The Lord loves his church. He loves her so much that he died to redeem her, and he will not stand idly by while she's attacked and undermined. I guarantee you that. But I would show you thirdly in verse 17 the words of consolation. The Lord makes some precious promises to the overcomers in the church. He promises special provisions. He promises them hidden manna. In the Old Testament, when the children of Israel wandered through the wilderness, God fed them by sending manna down from heaven. Now some of this manna was gathered and kept in a golden pot in the Ark of the Covenant. Ancient Jewish tradition says that when Israel was taken into captivity by the Babylonians, Jeremiah hid this pot of manna, and when Messiah returns, he'll feed the people of Israel again. Now, this manna is a picture of God's precious promise to feed his children. You see, the people in Pergamos were idolaters. They worshiped in religions that thrived on secrets and mysteries. The early Christians were excluded from the secrets and mysteries. Jesus said, you don't need their secrets. Walk with me, and I will take you to a special place and feed you something this world knows nothing about. The saints of God might be excluded from many things in this world, but we have a place we can go. We can enter into his sanctuary and hide in his pavilion. And when we're there, he will feed us with delicacies the world cannot imagine, nor can they duplicate. The world and those in it have to search forever deepening experiences. They go to the table of sin and they eat their fill. The true saint of God is content to be alone with his Lord in his tabernacle, feeding on his word and his presence, according to Psalm 27, verses 1 through 5. He promises his people a place of escape and refreshment, even during the most of difficult, difficult times. Not only will he provide for the overcomers, he will grant them some special privileges not enjoyed by others. He gives them a new degree. Where he mentions the white stone, the, the Lord promises to give his faithful ones a white stone. This does not mean much to us, but it held special meaning to the people in that day. There are several possible meanings that's attached to the white stone. I'll give you just a few. White and black stones were used to indicate judgment in ancient courts of law. When a judge rendered his verdict, he would place a stone in a container at the appropriate time. He would roll the stone out, thus rendering his judgment. A black stone indicated a judgment of guilt, while a white stone gave a judgment of innocence. Jesus is telling these people that they might be blackballed by the world, but they were innocent in his eyes. He had taken all the black stones that were against them, and he's washed them white in his blood. Again, white stones were used to signify citizenship. White stone was often given to people who had proven their allegiance to the city. Jesus honors those who live for him. White stones were also used as a symbol of victory. They were given to those who had won a victory in one of the ancient games. 
These white stones were called tessera, and they allowed the owner free access to all public entertainment. Jesus allows his victors access to the glories of his heaven. White stones were also a symbol of friendship. Often two friends would take a white stone, break it in half, and write the other friend's name on their half. And when they met, even after many years, they could place the halves of their stones together, together signifying their lasting relationship. Well, again, white stones were used to gain access. When a wealthy person would throw a party, they sometimes gave their invited guests white stones. When it came time for the celebration, the person who presented a white stone was granted access to the banquet. My friend, Jesus Christ allows his people access to the greatest banquet of all time, the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19. Jesus promised his overcomers that their white stone would contain a new name which no man knoweth, saving he that received it. Now that was a promise of intimacy. It was customary in that day for guests at a dinner to have a white stone placed at their seat. And when they were seated, they could look at the stone and underneath would be a private message from the host. It was a way for the host to share an intimate thought with each guest. Now Jesus promises those who are faithful to him that he will reveal himself to them in a personal and intimate way. You see, he is my Savior, and I hope he's your Savior as well. But I have a relationship with Jesus that you cannot have. You have a relationship with him that I cannot have. We are all saved the same way. But he, he has done things in and for and to me that he hasn't done in and for and to you. We each have individual special relationships. And those who walk with him and separate from the world will see this intimacy heightened and taken to new levels as the years go by. Now in closing, we've covered a lot of territory in these verses. But I wonder, is your relationship with Christ all that it should be? Is your relationship with Christ all that it can be? Is your relationship with Christ all that you want it to be? Are you actively separating yourself from the world to love him and him alone, or has your life been invaded by the doctrine of Balaam, where you seem to set yourself up on a pedestal thinking that you do no wrong? I trust that as we come to Christ today, that we would be transparent with him and we would actively separate ourselves from this world to love him and him alone. Thank you for listening to our broadcast today. We trust it's been a blessing. Trust you'll have a great week in the Lord. Log on to our website, gospeldynamite.org, and let us know if you've accepted Christ or this message has helped you. God bless you, and we trust you have a great day in the Lord.